0: This is exactly right.
1: Well, I find too that if I get too ahead of myself, that's when I start to catastrophize, and that takes up a lot of um, energy that, you know, could be better spread elsewhere. So if you just kind of can stay on top of everything, like just enough, that's, I think, sort of the key to doing a lot of things at once.
2: Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for us parents to seek the same in our own lives while striving to be the best versions of ourselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, with increased awareness, you can be purposeful, about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is The Babysitter's Club and more with Rachel Schuchert. Rachel is the creator, showrunner, and executive producer of the acclaimed Netflix series, The Babysitter's Club, a top 10 original sitcom on the platform that has a 100% on Rotten Tomatoes and is now in its second season. She's also currently an executive producer on the upcoming season of Hulu's The Handmaid's Tale. We're going to talk about how many hours she has in her day soon. Rachel has previously written on Glow for Netflix, Supergirl for CBS, and Red Band Society for Fox. She's also written seven novels in which, two, Everything is Going to be Great and Have No Shame were critically acclaimed. Her writings have appeared in a number of other publications you know about, Vanity Fair, NPR, New York Mag, Vulture, Slate, and The Wall Street Journal. And also, she's written five, over five theatrical plays. Rachel, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: Okay, so much to talk about. Um, Let's start with, um, let's just start with where you came from (laughs) and your road out west, because it informs a lot of what you've done.
1: Yeah, um, well, I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, uh, and had a... A fairly conventional Midwestern childhood. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I went to NYU for acting, actually. My, so my background is in theater and I, was, um, I started as an actor at, at Tisch, at the Tisch School of the Arts. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and as I was sort of going through that program, I started to like write things to perform and sort of started to write for the theater and started to find that kind of more fulfilling than performing. So yeah, I feel like my playwriting career kind of grew out of my my acting school experience that way. Like I would just start to write like scenes to perform in class and monologues and things like that, because I would get sort of tired of hearing the same ones over and over again. So I would write like a scene or a monologue and pretend it was from a real play that someone else had written. Mm-hmm. And then eventually, I think some of the teachers figured out that I was writing them was like, you can just say that you wrote this. <laughs> so um, so I kind of made that shift sort of after college and um, started writing for the theater. And then, yeah, like I was saying, just to sort of... Pay the bills. Mm -hmm. Um, I started writing for blogs and magazines and things like that. I feel like it was really that kind of flowering of the internet in like the early 2000s, where all of a Mm -hmm. sudden you could like sell a personal essay about your sex life or whatever for $500. (laughs) And then that was like, you know, your grocery money for the month. Um, So I started doing a lot of that. And then from that, uh, I I got my first book deal for an essay collection. Um, And from that, I wrote a memoir and then I wrote a couple of YA novels. Um, but I really, you know, had kept my kind of career in theater going. And a lot of my friends that were playwrights were starting to make the move out to Los Angeles straight for television mm-hmm. and things like that. And I felt like that was something that I really wanted to do and really could do. And the thing that I always struggled with the most about sort of journalism and writing for book, writing books and things like that is that I'm such a collaborative thinker and such a like true extrovert in the way that I get all of my creative energy from like being around other people, that it was a real struggle for me to like spend so much time alone in my apartment, just like with my own thoughts and, and not even emotionally, just like, I'm like, I don't know what to say. I have to talk, th- I have to talk about this with somebody, <laughs> you know? Um, so, so television felt like really a natural fit for me and um, it really has been. So I moved to L.A. in 2013. I already had representation and stuff like that, but um, and, and, and made the leap. And it's been quite a ride. <laughs>
0: it's been a
2: ride. What I was wondering about the identity shift for, you know, when you're thinking about well, I imagine when one is thinking about um, becoming an actor and all of the time and all of the energy and all of the studying and all of the people that, you know, you emulate what was that shift? Was that a big shift an identity shift Uh, and and did you make a decision, or did it just kind of slowly happen?
1: It was kind of a slow evolution, but when I realized what it was, i mean i well first of all, I don't necessarily think it has to be like all or nothing for a lot mm-hmm. of people like I don't really perform that much anymore unless somebody like asks me to, but I think a lot of people are able to have these kind of parallel careers or they perform in their own work or they you know um And that's great. I I feel like they're actually like very related skills. I remember reading something, Stephen Sondheim, you know, who just died this (laughs) last weekend, had been an actor in college. And he said how he feels like all the great playwrights were also actors, you know, Shakespeare, like lots of, because as an actor, you have this sort of um, natural sense of how words feel in your mouth of the internal rhythm of the scene of like where it needs to get to emotionally of what's playable. And just kind of how it affects you. And I, I find myself using those skills a lot as I write, like sort of acting out scenes and kind of finding my way beat to beat. Like if I was, if I was going to act this, like what would the mm-hmm. journey through the scene be? Mm-hmm. And that has been really useful for me in my career to have that background. Um, I guess in terms of thinking about myself, it it was a little bit of a shift. You know, I was like a very a very performative little girl who needed a lot of attention <laughs> from mm-hmm. other people. <laughs> and I think it was part of part of like the maturation process to be like, maybe I don't need that. Maybe I'm okay to kind of be a little bit in the background. And, but I remember the first time that was really like a profound experience for me was the first time I saw something I had written performed and I wasn't in it. I'd written this play and it was performed um, at the Williamstown Theater Festival by like the non-equity company there, um, which is sort of like you know, all these like actors in their early 20s and they do plays and they do new plays. And it's like a great place for kind of a young playwright and a young actor to kind of get things going. And I was not in the play and I went up to see it. And it was just like transformative for me. Like there there were all these things that I hadn't thought of. Like it was amazing to see it kind of come alive with somebody else's perspective and someone else's like um, interpretation of it on stage. It was so, it was really like sitting in the audience of that was like the most fulfilling experience I've ever had. I was like, I've never Mm. forgotten it. I've never forgotten what it felt like. I was like 24 years old and I was like, I think this is it. Like this is so much more satisfying to see what other people have found in my work, you know?
2: That feeling, you know, those of us who are lucky to have that feeling when something is just as they say, we say in flow,
1: right? Mm -hmm. It's like
2: this just, it just feels right.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it felt right. I just remember sitting there like thinking my face was going to break because I was like
0: mm-hmm.
1: smiling and it just felt so also like, it's a weird thing to say. It felt so flattering. Like it felt like such an honor <laughs> to have mm-hmm. like written these things and have other people treat these words with like seriousness, you know? Yeah. Like, oh, you you bothered to learn them. Like <laughs> you're saying them. It was yeah. really, it was really amazing. So I'm just chasing that high. <laughs>
2: you're still you're still on it, you're still on it where um so in terms of geography, you know, you start in omaha, you then you go to new york, um you end up in l a how would you how would you describe the different how these different cultures have impacted you?
1: Um, that's a really good question. I mean, growing up in Omaha, where I grew up it's it's a funny combination of things. I feel like Omaha, for whatever reason. Has become a city that a lot of creative people come out of because it's a great place. There's there, it's big enough that there's like some there's sort of an artistic community there. You know there's sort of a community theater scene. There's music. There's a, a really strong music scene. Like there's all this kind of stuff you can do there. But the point of accessibility is really low. <laughs> you know, like it's not because it's not really so professionalized as it is like on the coast. So like if you're just like eight or nine and like you want to be in a play like you can like figure out a way to do that fairly easily and get kind of swept up into it and and really be part of this sort of functioning artistic community um, in a way that's really cool. So you kind of get to, to learn a lot, I think, without even really realizing it. Cause you know, I was just a kid, but I got super involved in like theater in Omaha, like children's theater, community theater, all that stuff and, and sort of understood really early what it was like to be in this sort of like artistic collaborative community. Um, but it's also the Midwest, you know, so it doesn't really, uh, it it doesn't really allow you to be too impressed with yourself. (laughs) You know, it's, it's a very grounding place to go Mm -hmm, up, mm -hmm. you know, no one really gives you a lot (laughs) in terms of like attention or indulgence or anything like that. You just kind of just supposed to sort of put your head down and get the work done
0: Yeah,
1: and kind of sticking your head above the parapet is not really like the way there.
2: Whack-a-mole. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. So that, you know, I think is frustrating in some ways, but is also useful when you go to places that are more like that, because, you know, you're able to kind of do that, you know, when to take a step back. I don't know. Someone, someone said to me once how they think Midwesterners are better at reading a room than anybody else in the world. <laughs> like just being able to like walk into a room of people and being like, okay, this one wants to be the center of attention. This one is judging me. This one I'm judging. This one, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, kind yeah. Of like, just kind of being able to feel things out and like adapt yourself into like the way that you need to be. And that is a really useful skill in like a TV writer's room, for example, you know, mm-hmm, to just sort of mm-hmm. be able to find your place in it and, and adapt and not kind of overwhelm anybody. Um, and then New York, you know, New York is, I feel like New York was really the place where I learned how to be like a, a, a creative person. I mean, there's so much energy there mm-hmm. and, and the pace is so intense and you really like kind of are able to cope with stimulus. Like I learned how to cope with stimuli in New York in this way that I think has been really useful in my life, you know, because mm. there's just so much coming at you all the time. Yeah so much that you want to do and so much that you don't really want to deal with, but just have to. Um, And I feel like it really stretched my capacity to like deal with things, (laughs) (laughs) being able to take on like a lot of tasks, being able to like really figure out how to like get everything done. You know, like that energy has kind of never left me. And it's also where I met so many of the people that are so important in my life, people I went to college with, people that I kind of met right after college we were all kind of like writers and actors coming up together. And now I feel like I'm at this place in my life where all these people that I've known for 20 years are really coming into like massive parts of their careers. And, and I feel like I'm now at this place where I'm like, well, I know everybody. You know, I know seven people on that TV show and I know that those three yeah. writers that have plays on Broadway. And that, you know, and they're all like, like that really feels like my people and, in a yeah. way that is very cool to feel part of. Um, And then in LA, you know, I feel like this is where I really have kind of grown into like a professional life in terms of what it means um, to really function in like the kind of commerce side of the business, which Mm -hmm. has been very useful to me. It's where I've had my son and my family and like have kind of learned how to be a parent and a mother and everything that that means to me. Um, And it's also kind of, I think, where I've learned how to be a leader, which feels very hand in hand with the... With being a parent right now, because it sort of all happened at the same time. Like yeah. I sort of um I became a showrunner for the first time when my son was like not quite two, <laughs> <You know? laughs> like and um and just as like my career was kind of really taking off here, that's when I like had a baby. Yeah. So I feel like those two things have really grown hand in hand here in LA.
2: And um he's five uh four now. He's that, four, yeah. Four, right. So this is <laughs> I mean, it's a long, it's a long road, long road and climb to where you, you, where you are today. And the last, uh, four years have been a complete whirlwind. I imagine. Yes. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yes, they have.
2: <laughs> so you're, you were, you're, you were working on glow and then the opportunity for, um, babysitters club kind of uh, like all, and then, and you're all this was just kind of happened?
1: Yeah. I mean, I've been working on Glow. Liz, and, Liz Flayhive and Carly Mensch, um, who are the creators and show owners of Glow, are two of my greatest, oldest friends, also from that whole time in New York of our early 20s and being writers together. So it, it was such a dream to get to work on that show. And when we were kind of early in the first season, Carly and I both got pregnant that first season writing. So like, and our sons are like two weeks apart. <laughs> I remember I had terrible morning sickness. So I I told everybody in the room finally that I was pregnant kind of before I was ready to tell them because I just felt so terrible. I was like, I just need you guys to know I'm not like an alcoholic. <laughs> I keep, like disappearing yeah, yeah. to vomit and, and yeah. it just it's like hard to hide. And I remember Carly like got really serious for a second and she walked out of the room and then she came back in and she was like, um, I just wanted to say that I'm pregnant too. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> trying to <laughs> trying to take any thunder out of yeah. Rachel's announcement and I wasn't ready to tell you guys but since Rachel went ahead and said yeah. it, it was so funny. So we really like went through that whole experience together and that first season was really special because of it. I like had this friend to, like compare symptoms mm-hmm. to and be like, how are you, like who, whose tummy was getting bigger faster and like who, I remember, and I remember my morning sickness was so bad and hers, she really didn't have any and Genji Cohan, who's one of the EPs on the show was like, well that's because Rachel's having a girl and Carly's having a boy because you have Mm-hmm. worst morning sickness with girls. And then I also had, boy, I just, yeah, <laughs> just
0: yeah.
1: had terrible morning sickness. But um, but yeah, so so I was pregnant throughout that time. And then I gave birth over hiatus. Um, and then I had about three weeks off with my newborn before I had to go back to
2: work. <laughs> Great timing how you did that though with hiatus and everything.
1: Yeah, I know. Yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> it was very yeah. smart of me. I had so yeah. much control over it. Yeah. um, But yeah, so he, I went back to work and he was about three and a half weeks old and carly's son was yeah like about five or six weeks old so we were both kind of like really in the weeds um I, and and then it also became sort of intense because i felt like she was having an easier time with everything she was having he was a better sleeper she was having an easier time with breastfeeding and i was just like
2: don't you hate anything. that god that's the worst that's the worst I yeah, like i'm really happy night. for you i'm really happy for you yeah yeah. I
1: remember we like pumping together once in the office and she was just like chatting and like on the phone and getting these like bags and bags and bags of milk. And I had like three ounces. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, I'm not doing this in the room yeah. with you. Yeah. <laughs> it's like too embarrassing that I'm stuck at this. <laughs> um, <laughs> But, you know, but that was great because I felt like we were going through it together. And so, you know, I, like was my boss and we were like in the same boat and and Liz had little kids of her own and she was super supportive. And Kim Rosenstock, who was another writer that season, had like a 10 month old. So we were just this like group of moms who were kind of doing this together. So like when you had to lock yourself in your office and like cry, like everybody understood, <laughs> you know, yeah. it was really kind of yeah. um, uh, like the utopian ideal of motherhood. But I was very yeah. tired. Mm-hmm. So it was about three weeks into that.
2: So you needed I, another project because you needed, were just yeah,
1: exactly. You well, were that was just
2: the thing. on top of the work. You just had it all under control.
1: I was like about I know, was like eight weeks postpartum or something crazy. And I got this email from Lucy Katata, who is a friend of mine who's an executive. And she was working for Mike DeLuca at the time at his company. And she was like, did you... And she knew I had just had a baby and everything, but she was like, "I just wanted—I know that things are probably crazy, but I don't want to not talk to you about this. So I'm not going to assume that you're going to say no, (laughs) which is always a nice thing, you know." Mm -hmm. And she was like, "Did you ever read The Babysitters Club growing up?" And I was like, "Oh my, oh my God, yes! I was completely obsessed with those books. I loved them so much. They were my whole life." And she's like, "Great. Um, I'm trying to get this TV adaptation going. Um, We have like Walden Media as the studio on it." And I guess Walden had the rights to the books or when Lucy talked to them, they bought the rights to the books for Lucy and Mike to produce. um, Because they had this sort of, I think that uh, Scholastic, who, you know, are the rights holders on the books and they published them, had been approached a lot over the years about adapting them. And they had always said no, because they're very protective over those Mm -hmm. books and they're so beloved. And I think they were worried that someone would try to sort of age it up and make it kind of too dark and, you know but they really trusted Walden and had this relationship with them. So they were able to get the rights. And so Lucy came to me and I was like, yes, I would absolutely. I'm interested. And she was like, okay, cool. We'll set a meeting with me and Naya Susikoff, who was at Walden, who's another executive producer. Um, and you can just kind of like pitch us your take and we'll talk about it. And I was like, okay, great. And then because I was like seven weeks postpartum, I completely forgot about this phone call. (laughs) Cause I was so, I mean, I was, I was like functioning on like 45, like, Theo, my son started like cluster feeding at night because I was working already. So he would wake up like every 40 minutes and, when, and I was sleeping oh, yeah. like 45 yeah. minutes at a time. And I just, Nuts. I was like diving off the Nuts. studio a lot with my car door open. Like it was not good. <laughs> and so I forgot about this phone call. And then I was on set at Glow and the phone rang and it was them. And I was like, oh my God. And I just had to totally kind of wing it. Like I just, but the thing that was amazing is that like I could barely remember like my own name. I like, de- if you would asked me my address, like I could not have told you, but I remembered every detail of the Babysitter's Club. It was like in the hard drive in this like really deep way. And I just pitched them like this whole vision for the show. And they were like, great, um, that sounds great. Well, you should talk to Lucia and Yellow, who's attached to direct and like, we'll move this forward. And I wound up like getting the job um, and Lucy has said to me, like, you know, years later, like, I had no idea that you were about that meeting. I had no idea that any of this happened. But now she wow. knows. Wow.
2: Wow. Um, and so it's that. But again, I'm going to bring in this flow state, even though you were in a crazy sleep deprived, you know, insomniatic state you just you be, it just you didn't even have to stress about it you didn't even have to prepare you didn't actually have to lose sleep over how big this opportunity could be and will you get it or not you just kind of stepped into everything and I were mean, your authentic self
1: yeah I, sometimes i almost think it's better to be because in my experience a lot anxiety about something takes up so much energy
0: for sure that yeah. could
1: be otherwise spent actually doing the thing yeah. And so sometimes when you forget about something and the anxiety of it is removed, <laughs> it's actually better.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and when you would just, uh, um, when we think of peak performance and uh, the psychology of performing any sport or um, anything on stage, one of the number one things these uh, psychologists do is help people get into themselves and push anxiety away because anxiety is the biggest showstopper.
1: Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. I know. It's like, you have to sort of just let, let the training take over as we used to say in acting school, you know, Mm -hmm. let the technique take over. You, you learn the technique and then you throw it away. So then you can just be in the moment, you know?
2: So there's over Um, 200 over, like there's over over 200 (laughs) books. And I just think, I mean, what an opportunity to be able to take these works that were so, um, instrumental in your life at a particular age in life and be able to bring it to the screen. Um,
0: it's it's been unbelievable.
1: I mean, it's been, I get emotional thinking about it. Like just being a little girl reading those books, we used to like, play babysitter's club at recess. Like we would each be one of them and like act out our own stories of that when I was like nine. And, um, that became my job.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So tell everyone, so we don't want to assume, and we also, we also have a, um, a younger audience as well. Um, tell everyone just the premise of the book and the book series and now the show.
1: Um, well, it's about a group of girls who are friends who start a babysitting business Um, the original babysitters are Christy, Claudia, Stacy, and Marianne, and they're kind of friends in Stony Brook, Connecticut. And they're all at sort of different levels of maturity and, you know, have different interests and are very different from each other. But they form this club, the babysitter's club, to take jobs around the neighborhood and to kind of be caretakers in their community. And then Dawn Schaefer joins them. And then later they get two more babysitters, Jesse Ramsey and Mallory Pike. Um, but it's really about friendship. It's about caretaking. It's about responsibility. um, And it's about this very particular kind of in-between age where you're not really a teenager, but you're not really a little kid anymore. And kind of, you're figuring out who you are um, through your friends, you know, and Mm -hmm. through, and through Mm -hmm. kind of what you can do in, in your town. And I think I, as a kid, loved them so much. The girls are all so distinct. I feel like everybody's got the one that's their favorite and the one they identify with and, um, and their friendship. It was just, it was like the kind of thing where you just, you wanted to be one of them. You wanted to know them. You wanted to be one part of the club. Um, and they have all these like little adventures, you know, with different things and different trips and, Boys and contests, <laughs> you know, all kinds of things like that. Um, but that's, that's sort yeah. of the idea. Yeah. Yeah. And
2: there, I mean, as I've been reading about the show and um, watching, I, uh, how, do, how do I say this? I, you're taking on, I, I, f- I feel like you're taking on this um, notion. That a show has to be dark, highly dramatic, have like huge, um, gosh, like just like huge catastrophe to, mm-hmm. to get ratings and to hook an audience. And, and my sense is you're like, no, 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 we can have a, a, a real show about real things and, um, and show the, the values that we want to show.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a really smart and lovely thing to say. <laughs> um, I feel like that's absolutely what we've tried to do. I mean, the thing that I loved so much about the books and I think um, have connected with them again as an adult, you know, it's it's inter- it's been interesting to reread them as an adult because I have my sort of childhood memories of them. And then, then you read them through adult eyes and, and the experience is sort of the same and different, you know? And I feel like part of what I love about them And I think part of what I loved about them as a kid, but can't connect, couldn't connect to, or couldn't like articulate at the time is that they're written on such a human scale in a way that feels very much like real life, you know, Mm -hmm. like these girls have little challenges and things happen and there's definitely conflict and there's some big issues, but they're all the kinds of things that actually happen to you. It's not about like being chosen by the prophecy to save the world. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like it's all things that like you could actually do. It's like, how are you there for a friend that's going through a hard time? How do you help a kid that's sick and scared? How do you stand up for somebody that's being bullied? You know, how do you deal with grief? How do you be like a strong person for your family? Like all of those kinds of things that are the kinds of lessons that you really need to learn at that age and I think really carry through in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that some of these like larger, more sort of hero's journey stories that a lot a, a lot of YA fiction are have been based around for the last several years you know, can be great and really entertaining, but they're not that they don't really show you how to be like a person in the world and a good friend and a, you know, a good partner and a good parent and all of those things. And so I felt like that's part of what is so lovely about these books is like that they're just like a slightly elevated version of like what you might actually experience in your real life.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um and and I find that very compelling, you know. I I feel like I feel like sometimes the subconscious messaging of the darkness and the um, you know, the hugeness of a lot of the kind of stuff that's made for kids this age, there's a sort of subconscious m- message that like, but but, but we have to do it this way because your actual life isn't interesting enough. <laughs> right. Or you're not actually interesting enough. Yeah. And I think that kids and especially girls are, are incredibly interesting at that age. <laughs> and I wanted them to feel that like what's actually happening with them is worthy of like serious interrogation mm-hmm. and serious intention, uh, serious attention, you know, mm-hmm. that, um, that like what you're worried about is real. It doesn't need to be swept under the rug. It doesn't, it can be like addressed. It doesn't have to be overwhelming. You don't have to have these like massive scale conflicts right. to right. be like compelling conflict, you know?
2: You know, I was, yes. And I was just reflecting on, tell me uh, how, how you think about this. Back like in my, those teenage years, those adolescents, you know, a lot of the development is about um, fitting in. You know, finding other people like you, being a part of a group, having this identity, identity formation. And with um, social media, media, I mean, kids, teenagers in our time didn't have access to all of these other competing messages outside of the book. Right. Is there, do you think this mess, are you speaking to this message of like, everyone has to be different and, and like, outlandish and, you know, like, what have you done lately as opposed to just being typical and knowing that typical is not even typical?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like everybody is sort of outlandish in their own way. I mean, I think what's so beautiful about the friendship in the books and that we've tried to do on the show is that like all of the girls are very different from each other. They have different interests, different styles, different, like I said, kind of different levels of maturity in a way that always felt very real. You know, that there's like Some girls at 13 are more like 17-year-olds, some girls at 13 are more like (laughs) 10-year-olds, you know? Like that part of you that still kind of wants to play with dolls, but also like wants to have a boyfriend. Like (laughs) that's sort of Mm -hmm. like and like which which side of the spectrum are you on? Like, but they're still, they're still friends with each other and they're still, and they're all kind of enough, you know? They all sort of like have moments where they feel like, you know, they need to be different or, but like, they all kind of feel like enough and they kind of help each other feel that way that they Mm -hmm. have like a place where they fit in, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that that's, that's a great thing about the books, you know, it kind of doesn't push any of them too fast, too far in a way that I think some stuff does, you know, kind of pressuring kids to grow up faster than they're ready for, or to sort of, or conversely to be kind of less complex than they really are, you know? Right. Um, I think, I, I think, yeah, I think that this idea that you can just be sort of a regular person and, and maybe that's, that's my midwesternness, mm-hmm. talking, mm-hmm. but still very interesting and very unique and individual. Um, and everything doesn't have to be about this sort of competition of who's got the biggest, whatever. You
2: yeah. Know? And and I was actually going <laughs> to go there with your, um, Midwestern upbringing, because I know this is you know, we all have profiles and stereotypes. And so a common one is the, um, family values and the groundingness and the, um, I don't know, for me, having always been on the West coast, either this mm-hmm. North or South, um, it just, and when I've traveled through, it's like, it's slower It people are friendly, like there it seems like there's more time to think, and I, it does it does seem like this has really informed, obviously, who you are, but also how you think about um, the show. And I was going to go to and raising raising a yeah. new a new human in this a world.
1: Human. Yes, I mean, I I do feel like sometimes the family valuesness of the Midwest. I I feel like I what I really want to try to do is break the link between the idea of like family values and conformity, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, that, like, and I think that that is one thing that can some, this can be one of the more sort of toxic elements of where I grew up is mm-hmm. like, yes, all of that is true. Like as long as you fit into this certain template,
0: mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and
1: I would like to put forward the fact that everybody deserves that and that there's so many different ways to be a family and to be a great member of a family that don't necessarily fit this like very kind of like 1950s version of that, you know? Yeah. Um, Although I do think that that's changing. But yeah, I do feel like in the Midwest, there is a sense. I mean, at least there used to be when I was growing up. I do think like things have changed as the country Mm -hmm. has become more polarized and all of that is really sad. But there was sort of this sense of like civic mindedness and like being part of the community and I especially was raised like that I think cuz my father was the city planning director of Omaha when I was a kid and mm. was constantly talking about like community space and like <laughs> community mm-hmm. values and service and all of these sorts of things that were really like imbued in me in an early yeah. age. So um so yeah I think I think there is an and also just sort of being willing to trust other people and um you know I think that there's yeah. something there for sure.
2: So what yeah parenting. <laughs> Um, so many questions, so many thoughts I have, I'm having here. Um,
1: it's been a hard couple of years. Yeah. I was going (laughs) to say
2: harder than you thought. Um, just like exactly what you thought.
1: I don't know. I mean, I feel like the last two years have been so anomalous. It's like, I definitely didn't think this was going to
0: happen. Yeah. Um,
1: it's both harder and easier than I thought, you know, it's, it's, Can be so fun. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: It can be so unfun.
0: (laughs) Yeah.
1: Um, and it can be so, and it's so revealing of of who you are, you Mm -hmm. know. Which Mm -hmm. like, which I find very interesting. Like every day, I'll find myself saying something to him, and I'm like, "This is so because of something my parents did, or in reaction to something my parents did." And and I notice it with my husband too. Like my husband, my husband doesn't talk about his childhood a ton. Like he doesn't. but sometimes I'm like, oh, this is why you're like,
0: <laughs> just mm, like just, put like, that together. That yeah. To Theo,
1: yeah. yeah. Like It's very interesting to see the way that like the way you were raised sort of ref- like um, reflects itself through the way that you parent.
2: You just yeah. You just said something so important um, is it is the window like it, it re- like even though we have our own we, we are our own person, of course. but. The only thing we know about parenting is how we were parented and then our natural reactions to situations until we realize, hmm, do I really want to say that? Did I like that when my so-and-so parent said that to me? Or, you know, can I do that different? Or it's that pause and really trying to have some space.
1: Yeah, I do think it makes you a better person, you know, because it's so, I mean, that's what's scary about it is like the the window like you said <laughs> you know you really wind up looking under the trunk like under the hood <laughs> yeah. like, like whether you whether you mean to or not and um and you learn you have to sort of see yourself and your partner so clearly and that is sort of terrifying you mm-hmm.
2: know and then there's just to add some layers to it because you brought your husband into it so we're going to keep mm-hmm. it going here is um Not only like do we have our own way of doing things. First of all, there's the way we thought we were going to do things or think we're going to do things, and then there's the way we actually do them, which might not always be aligned. And then our partners have their own experience of upbringing, which you know, you just you just I most people just think about their upbringing and kind of make assumptions like, yeah, most were probably like this, but they're not. They're so different.
1: They're so different. (laughs) I mean, and my husband grew up in another country his parents are divorced. Mine are still together. Like there's a lot of differences in our childhoods, even though I feel like superficially, there's a lot of similarities, but like Mm -hmm. in the actual kind of emotionality of like our childhood experience is super, super different. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's funny to see like things that your partner cares about that you don't at all. And it's like, what were they missing? Like what, you know, or what was I missing?
2: (laughs) Right. Right. Oh yeah. There's that question too. right?
1: Oh, maybe, maybe the problem is me.
2: Yeah, so different. I know that uh, my wife and I have had that experience too over the years. It's just like, wow, it's just different things are important
0: mm-hmm.
2: in- to you for different reasons, right? Sometimes it's that you loved this ritual or this situation or going to these places, or you never want to replicate feeling or doing something that you did or something that you experienced. And then that's at the conscious level. We all like react to things without even totally knowing oh, as, yeah. as why we react to them.
1: Yeah. And when you add like stress and work and you're tired and like, what, yeah. like all of that stuff is <laughs> so like unconscious, you know, and reflexive. And then, and then you feel bad. I mean, I will say this about me as a parent. I don't yell as much as I was worried I was going to.
2: Nice. There are several people listening who want to be you right now. <laughs>
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I thought I was going to be a much worse I'm much more patient than I expected to be. That has been like a nice surprise. That like, is a all nice. time but like yeah. More.
2: <laughs> huh. And and how much is that due to fatigue and how much is that to your growing uh maturity? Uh,
1: <laughs> I mean, I do think it's I'm glad that I was a little older when I had my son. I think mm-hmm. if I had had him sort of 10 years earlier, I would have been a lot Less,
2: yeah. Patient. yeah. There are
1: definitely like some wins to kind of being like an older parent. I mean, not that I'm like that old, but you know what I mean. Like, like having your for sure in your in, in your late thirties, you know, as opposed to like your late twenties or something like that.
2: Yeah, or even early twenties, mid twenties. Yeah, yeah.
1: So I think I think that has really helped that you just have like sort of more patience and perspective in general. You know, true. true. Um. So that I also feel like I. My parents are, you know, lovely and, and loving and all of that, but they were, they did get like a little impatient and yelly. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think, I guess I didn't love that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Yeah. Good for you and doing it a little different, doing it a little different. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, You know, and I, I feel like I'm not as, I also, I think that this is very, um, indicative of like my generation of like those kind of boomer parents where it was all about like the flashcards and how early are you reading and all this kind of like all these like achievement things and and I was like and I was one of those kids I was like a very early reader like I think they had sort of like Massive expectations for me, which I definitely felt, mm-hmm. and feel that I have disappointed at every turn throughout my adulthood. Now I'm just mm-hmm. talking to you like you're my therapist. Yeah, yeah.
2: I was gonna <laughs> say, I was gonna say, with your recent uh, credentials, man, that bar is set super high, super I am, high.
1: My, it's a little crazy in my family. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I am um, very, I am very proud of you, though. Thank just thank I want you, you to know that
1: Rachel. Do <laughs> people cry on this show? <laughs>
2: uh, yeah, they do. They do.
1: But um, and I have found that I find myself very like unconcerned with that stuff with my son.
0: Like mm-hmm. very like yeah. I just
1: I'm I'm not concerned about him being like a prodigy in any way or showing some kind of like massive talent in any area or trying to kind of force that on him. You know.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: Because also I feel like that must have been so much energy for them,
0: mm-hmm. you know?
1: Mm-hmm. Like Some of it I think is is like conscious and some of it is just like laziness on my own. part. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not going to sit here and do alphabet flashcards with you. Like you'll figure it out when you're ready.
2: It's so refreshing because we are in a time where um, it's just a time of a lot of pressure and a lot of parental pressure. So I do mm. hope that there's been a lot of work in the public about trying to push back against like the race to nowhere and yeah. um, and challenge success and all of these programs, which are like, let's f- focus on raising healthy, compassionate, socially minded human beings and let the rest follow without all this pressure to succeed, perform and be the best. It's just it's 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 it's, it's it well-intentioned and misguided and often goes way too far.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I also feel like I really have found myself taking my cues from my son in that regard. Like, he's just he just has one of those personalities where, like, he will not do anything until he is absolutely ready to do it. And the more <laughs> you try to push him to do it, the longer yeah. it will take for him to be ready. <laughs> mm-hmm. You are not the <laughs> so boss yet, of me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. and And he doesn't want to do anything until he knows he can do it. You know, yeah. he's like, he's one of those kids who like, he was such a late walker. And then the second he finally walked, he, it was like, he was running. Like there was never any like stumbling. There was yeah. no toddling. Like he just like walked like an adult. And I was like, oh, cause like you won't do this or you won't like let anyone see you fail. Exactly. <laughs> little
2: perfectionistic. It's okay. A little
1: perfectionistic it might run like, in the
2: family. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And kind of the same with talking, you know, like he talked and then all of a sudden he doesn't like to make mistakes and he doesn't like to for people to see him make mistakes so i feel like mm-hmm. things take him a little longer and then these skills just kind of like come out fully formed and there's nothing you can do to really speed the process up and i have just made my piece of
0: that. there you go there
1: you go <laughs> he, will the, he will read when he is ready to read perfectly without error he may already be able to read and he doesn't want me to know <laughs> he's know? working
2: on his first play. You just yeah,
1: don't know. Exactly. this. Yet. <laughs> yeah, yet. And those are actually, that's actually something that I recognize in myself. Like I've, I'm not someone who like, likes a lot of other people to read my drafts before I'm ready. You know, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't like to talk about things that I don't, there's a, he sort of needs to, it was like potty training was like that. Like he mm-hmm. just like wouldn't go. He, he like, he's like, no, I'm never going on the potty. And then we would do a potty chart, you know, and he would like get a prize at the end. And then I would try to get him to go again. And he's like, no, I got my rocket ship. I don't need to go on the potty anymore. And I was mm-hmm. like, it's supposed to be its own reward. That exactly. you don't see your own We're <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> like, get no more prizes. And then before he was going to start preschool, he like had to be potty trained. And finally, I was just like, Theo, you have to go in the potty. You have to. Or I'm just going to have to take away all of your toys. There's no other way. This has to happen. And he was like, not quite three yet. So it wasn't like super late, especially for a boy. Yeah. But he just kind of hung his head for a second and he goes, okay. <laughs> and then, and then from that day on, he was like completely potty trained, <laughs> like no night diapers, no accidents. <laughs> he Yeah,
2: you know, that is funny. Like the yeah. little the little adult, he's like, okay, I was gonna do it in two weeks, but I guess I'll do it now. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're gonna
1: take all my toys away. And yeah. then, of course, like two days after he was like basically potty trained, he's like at the park with his friend, his best friend augie that lives next door, who's a little younger. You know, he's like six months younger, and he was saying, and um, Michelle Hernandez was saying that Theo was like saying to Augie, like, oh, you still wear diapers? (laughs) 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 That's cool,
2: I guess. (laughs) Oh, man. He's already got his social skills so dialed in at a young age.
1: He's very funny. He's a very funny kid.
2: (laughs) So I just, I want to just, again, reflect. um, You've got a ton of awarenesses of, you know, looking at, like connecting these things about, how you want to be, how you don't want to be. And, and, um, and, and are being really intentional about that. I know in your best moments, but I mean, in, there's conversation trying to be intentional about that. And, um, I mean, there's not much more our kids can ask of us than, than, than to be that.
1: Thank you. I hope, um, I wish I could keep the house a little neater for him. <laughs> I feel like that's a, something's like got to give. I'm, good at like the traditional mom skills, mm, you know, mm. and which I feel guilty about sometimes. And I think some of it's just cause I work so much. And some of it I think is just me, but like just things like keeping his playroom organized, like, yeah. it, you know.
2: You just cooking. can't do it all. You can't oh, do it yeah. all. You can't do it all. And um, I just think you gotta be kind to yourself, which is a, back, a basis and backbone of the show being kind. Um, It brings me to, you know, with also with, um, the handmaid's tale, your, your large role there. (laughs) How do you, I mean, there are lots of our audience, right. Who are doing lots of things and trying to be a parent and be a professional. How do you, at this point in your life, how do you do that thing? And I think we need a new world than balance because I don't think it's really possible to be quote balanced in a lot of Mm -hmm. our situations. But, um, How do you go about your different roles and and managing them?
1: Well, I think the way that I think about it, and I I guess this is a form of balance, but you have to try to not get ahead of yourself. You know, it's like, I feel like it's sort of like not thinking to the end of the task before you've done the thing that you really need to do. Like as a showrunner, I always say that I'm so glad I was already a mom when I became a showrunner because it's really the same skill in a lot of ways. Like it's all triage, you know, it's like Mm -hmm. here are the 70 things that I need to get done today which one is bleeding? You know, like, which one do I have to do this second? Which Mm -hmm. one can wait till this afternoon? Which one do they not need to know about until maybe tomorrow? You know, and to just sort of really stay in the moment of like, here, here's what actually needs to get done like today in this moment. And here's what can wait for next week. And here's what they don't need to hear from me for another month or whatever, you know, like, yeah, I just try to like, keep everything in these sort of like manageable thing. Not, so I'm like, well, nice. this is like today, I th- these are my things I have to do today. And yeah. I'm not going to worry about all the things I haven't done yet until it's like time to do them. That's sort of the way that I have like, that, organized is, that is great.
2: And for everyone, like this is um this is anti man anti anxiety management, really? I mean, because well, I've done a lot right? of work
1: in that regard. Good Dr. for man. you.
2: <laughs> Good for you.
1: I hope I think I hope it's not six figures. <laughs> but it
2: might be. Whatever it was, it was highly effective.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Highly you know, effective,
2: like,
1: yeah. Well, I find, too, that if I get too ahead of myself, that's when I start to catastrophize, and that right. takes up a lot of um, yeah. energy that, you know, could be better spread elsewhere. So if you just kind of can stay on top of everything, like just enough, yeah. you know, yeah. that's, I think, sort of the key to doing a lot of things at once.
2: I think that's very wise. And I just had the image of the... um the plate spinners, uh, you know, there's like 10 plates on a, on a little stick and they're spinning them and they always go to the one that's about to fall. Right. And they're not, they're not worried about the other nine until they need to get to the next one. Now I wouldn't want to feel that stressed out in life as a, as a plate spinner. But the point is, as you're saying is what needs my attention right now and the other stuff that's out there, I'll get to it when I need to get to it instead of stress about it, worry about it, stay up, thinking about it
1: yeah and I do think that the busier you allow yourself to be the more you start to do that naturally Mm -hmm. because like you can't you can't obsess too much about any like individual thing yeah you know yeah so I feel like I actually am one of those people who manages my anxiety probably by having like a gazillion things going at once because I feel like when it's too quiet then I yeah that's when things get a little bit weird
2: yeah yes (laughs) You've got your strategy, and you yes. are you are <laughs> you are managing quite well. Yes. Um, I will say from my perspective.
1: Thank okay,
2: you. so Rachel, <laughs> you it's time. Talk
1: to my therapist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: we'll,
2: we'll get a release of information. We'll set all that. Yeah, up. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you
1: guys can have a professional yeah, yeah.
0: conversation.
2: <laughs> um, it's time for the parent footprint moment question. Okay. Here we go. Tell us about a time which you already have, but you'll come up with a new one. Tell us about a time when you became aware of yourself as an individual, as a parent, or an awareness of your parents and any of these awarenesses, how they had a positive impact on your life, your child's life, and those you love.
1: Well, it's interesting that this is coming now because it really does relate back to anxiety, I think. I grew up again with parents who are very loving and very supportive and very wonderful and created a really secure home in a lot of ways, but are both very anxious people. Mm. And I feel like I inherited a lot of that anxiety and a lot of that fear and a lot of the sense that like things were not going to be okay, You know, just that sort of like vague sense of, of unease all the time, which can be really damaging mm-hmm. um, as you get older and really kind of not helpful or I didn't find was serving me. Um, and I feel like in my family, because everyone knew that there was this constant undercurrent of anxiety that was never, you know, just this sort of like, it was always like this sort of river under the mill, you know, um, there was a lot of pressure to always act like you were fine. And again, I think mm-hmm. this is a little bit of the Midwesternness of it. Although my mother mm-hmm. is a therapist, interestingly, <laughs> but, um, to just be like, oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. No, I'm totally fine. Nothing's wrong. Nothing's wrong. Not and me. to kind of never admit when you were feeling worried or anxious or fearful, um, that was like something that you needed to keep a lid on. And I, I always felt like the kind of unconscious, like impetus behind that was that if you took the lid off, like the whole thing would boil over. So you just had to keep the lid on very tightly all the Mm -hmm. time. Um, and like I said, that was, that was an impulse that I felt was not serving me in my life. And so with my son, I felt like I really wanted him to be able to voice fear Mm -hmm. and voice nervousness without me being like, Oh no, you're fine. Don't be scared. It's not a big deal. You don't need to be nervous. You know, Cause I felt like I got a lot of that when you would like be like, I'm scared of that. And it's like, Oh, there's nothing to be scared of. <laughs> you
0: know, right, right. Even though I
1: could tell that my parents were also terrified by the same thing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so I have always really like encouraged him to voice any feelings of nervousness that he has so we can talk about it. Cause you know, that is what makes it go away. So like, for example, you know, he was expressing like a lot of nervousness about going to school you know, and being with new kids. And I was like, yeah, no, I understand why you feel nervous. You know, it's like new kids. You don't know everybody. And then, and I feel like as part of, of trying to get him to feel like he can voice that and to get those big feelings out. I also try to tell him when I'm nervous. Like, I'm like, you Mm. know, I'd like when I started the handmaid's tale, I was like, yeah, mommy's starting a new job today. And you know, I'm a little nervous. And he was like, you know, why are you nervous? I was like, well, you know, because it's all new people and I hope that they'll like mm-hmm. me and I hope they'll think I'm doing a good job. And it's a little nice. bit like when you started school and you felt nervous. And, and we talked, you know, we talk about those feelings. Um, and I feel like he's pretty good about voicing them to mm. me. Um, and I feel really good about that. Nice. And then a few months ago, my parents came to visit. <laughs> and we were out at lunch, like at a sort of outdoor cafe. And my mother was sitting there and she's very kind of wound up as she often is. And Theo, who I, I think was maybe four at the time, like had just turned four, like leans over the table as my mom's just sort of sitting there, like kind of clenching and like I can tell something's going on with her, but she won't talk about it and she won't whatever. Theo leans forward and he goes, Anna, that's what he calls her, Anna. Mm-hmm. Anna, you're a nervous yady. Do you, <laughs> you want to talk about what makes you nervous? I'll tell you what makes me nervous, zombies.
2: <laughs> wow. <laughs> whoa
1: and her jaw just kind of dropped it was such a perfect moment it was like he had like observed this he was going to put her at ease by going first
2: that is beautiful oh my god what a what an ability right not only to sense (laughs) it and then to articulate it as just as you modeled for him
1: i was so proud of of myself But it was like, you know, that's, I guess that's a version where I feel like I did something yeah. right. I have other ones that are, like, <laughs> oh,
0: that's that, good,
1: but that I do think it's like right. a good lesson to it be is. like, you know, to kind of face the thing that you don't want to do. Yeah. Which is like, I don't always want to tell, talk about what's bothering me. That's something that's hard for me. Yeah. But if I can like show my son that it's okay to do that, then he can kind of recognize that that's okay to do.
2: That's Awesome. And that's like, that's how we change the, you know, our, the transmittability of our, um, of our family heritage, right? Like keep the stuff you like and you try to change the stuff that you wanted to be different for you. So it could be different for your child. Yeah. And you can't
1: change it by pretending that it's not happening or it never happened.
2: No. Which I think is often people's
1: impulse.
2: Great moment. Thank you (laughs) for sharing that with us tell uh, so tell everyone where they can the shows um, um where they where they are right now in terms of coming up and in you know what episode and of course how they can go back and watch everything
1: well the babysitters club seasons one and two are currently on netflix um if they don't come up in your algorithm right away you can search them obviously in the search function both seasons are complete and they're on netflix so you can watch them anytime i will say Watch them all the way through. Completion is very important to Netflix in terms of their numbers. So Mm -hmm. even if you don't watch them all at once, like, um, but those are both there. Uh, Glow is also there in its entirety on Netflix, always on Netflix all the time, Mm -hmm. all episodes. Um, The Handmaid's Tale, if you haven't checked it out, is on Hulu. I think if you have Hulu, I think all... All episodes so far. We're we're just writing season five now, but nothing has been shot yet, so there's no new episodes yet. We're still in the writing process. Um, so yeah, that's where everything is.
2: Lots going on.
1: <laughs> Lots going Lots on. Lots
2: going on, and being a mom, and, being um, a mom. and so Luckily many other. I others. have
1: only one child.
2: <laughs> yes. <laughs>
1: That, yeah. that is a conscious
2: choice. <laughs> <laughs> a mindful choice. <laughs>
1: I know. I'm, I'm yeah. sorry, Theo. Yeah. Any, any siblings that you might have <laughs> had have been sacrificed on the altar
2: of career. Hey, it all, it all, it's the big picture. It's all. He, shine, he right? is a lucky person.
1: Only children are fine. <laughs>
2: they are fine. They're fine. Rachel, thank you for uh, sharing yourself with us today um, and really just being so insightful and um and helping others really you know understand and just accept anxiety which is what so many of us deal with um at multiple levels and um and just to show that it's something to be worked on and it's something that you know is is always we can keep growing and we can keep being how we want to be with work
1: Yes. Well, yeah. you're welcome. And thank you for yeah. this amazing work that you do. This is yeah. such a gift.
2: <laughs> thank you. All right, everyone, that concludes the show. We so appreciate your five-star reviews, sharing these episodes with people you care about and know will benefit. We love having a part of our community. And if you want more of Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan, check out our bonus episodes once a month exclusively on Stitcher Premium. To listen, just go to stitcherpremium.com slash Dr. Dan, click start free trial, select a monthly plan and sign up with the code Dr. Dan, and you'll get a month of free listening. You know what I'm going to ask you to do? Two main things. One is to try to be that person you want your child to become and ask yourself the guiding question I ask myself every day, what footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummer Man, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. If you are an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com forward slash ads. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.